0: Take a seat, let me pray, before we open the word of God together this morning. Lord, we come, and especially I come to you as one inadequate in the fullest sense of the word to be speaking here. It needs to be, and I use that word need, it needs to be you speaking not me. You have forgiven us so deeply. You have met our deepest need in restoring our relationship with you. That it is mind boggling that we can stop and do nothing but praise you for. Every moment of the rest of our physical lives here on earth and still not even come close to giving you the honor and the glory that you deserve for such a great forgiveness. Indeed, you have, as Isaiah wrote, abundantly pardoned. And yet we learn this morning again that it is not just you who forgives, but you call your people to forgive. Speak through me, I simply ask. Be glorified in me and through me and in this church and through this church. We pray in Jesus' name, the name that is above all names. Amen. Get your Bibles out this morning, if you would. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 12 as we continue our series. I think by the end of the sermon or sometime during the sermon, you should understand why I spent so much time talking about our sinful condition. The fact that we are what theologians say radically corrupt or totally depraved. And the reason, that is the reason why we confess our sins to God. But I want to begin with a few uh, stories here. This is from Max Lucado. Perhaps you've heard this before, if you have, humor me, but he writes this, that the handwriting was shaky, the stationery was lined loose-leaf paper, the ink was black, and the tone was desperate. The note was dated February 6, 1974, and was addressed to the U.S. government. This is what the note said. I am sending $10 for blankets I stole while in World War II. Now, World War II ended when? 1945. This is 1974. It says, my mind could not rest. Sorry I'm late. It was signed in XGI. Then there was this postscript. I want to be ready to meet God. This recruit was not alone in his guilt. His letter is one of literally tons of letters that have been sent to the U.S. government since it began collecting and storing the letters in 1811. Since that time, and this book was written in the early 2000s, $3,500,000 has been deposited in what is called the Conscience Fund. Did you know that our government had a Conscience Fund? In some instances, the amounts are small, only the remorse is big. One Colorado woman sent in two eight-cent stamps to make up for having used one stamp twice, which for some reason had not been canceled. A former IRS employee mailed in $1 for four ballpoint pens she had never returned to the office. A Sam, Ohio man submitted one dollar with the following note. When a boy, I put a few pennies on the railroad track and the train flattened him. And just I thinking, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> I also used a dime or a quarter in a silver coating experiment in high school. I understand there is a law against defacing our money. I have not seen it, but I desire it to be a law ...abiding citizen. Why in the world would people confess that and try and, quote, unquote, make things right? Well, remember last week, we looked at the first half of Matthew 6, 12. Forgive us our debts. And, of course, that means that it's really talking about confession of sin. Since all of our sins, right, past, present, and future, were forgiven by God at the cross... To pray, forgive us our debts, that doesn't mean we're asking God to forgive us again. That's what I've been taking care of. But rather to confess our sins to God. Now, why do we do this? So that we may experience once again the joy of fellowship with God and to free our conscience from guilt. This is why these people were sending in these small amounts of money. Their conscience was in bondage to guilt. They want to be free from that. That's why there is a conscience fund, apparently, in the United States government. What I love about the Lord's Prayer is that it recognizes that man's greatest need is to be forgiven by God. It's our greatest need. It is our deepest need. We need to be restored to a right relationship with our Creator. Now, as we look at Matthew six twelve, and forgive us our debts, there's a nasty little word, almost a curse word, it feels like. It's not a curse word, but it feels like it. It's a two-letter word that is absolutely lethal to us. As. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. I want you to consider this thought on the importance our Lord places on forgiveness. So get your Bibles out turn to Matthew 6 if you haven't already. Matthew chapter 6. Get your phone or Bible out. Is everybody there? Okay. Consider this thought on the importance our Lord places on forgiveness. Verses 14 and 15, you can read those. In fact, take a second and read verses 14 and 15. They explain the last half of verse 12. As we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, from verses 12 to 15, the word forgive or forgiven is used how many times? Count them. Forgive or forgiven is used, forgive or forgiven is used how many times? You should count six times. Now, that is significant. Do you sense the importance that forgiveness plays, or at least is on the mind of God, when he is teaching his disciples how to pray? Now, I want you to keep looking at verses 12 through 15. How many of the uses of the word forgive speak directly to us about forgiving others? You should count five of those six verses deal with us forgiving others. My question to you this morning is what is the Lord's point in all of this? Well, obviously, one point is very clear. He takes forgiveness seriously. And that makes sense because what did it cost His Son? What did it cost Him and His Son in the Spirit? For us to be forgiven and reconciled to him. An awful lot. So clearly he expects his children to forgive. Now I want to briefly give you five biblical reasons why we are to forgive others. We're going to go through this really fast. But I just want you to see this. Okay? Here's the first reason. And you can either write these down or take a picture on your phone and get all of them on the screen here. Is that. We are to forgive others because it reflects the character of believers. Matthew five forty three through 46, just listen to this. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, you know this, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, the only way you're going to pray for somebody and love somebody that is hurting you is if you have already forgiven them. You do so, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his Son rise in the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So it reflects the character of believers when we forgive. Number two, it is the example of Christ. We are to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Here's the thing, as God in Christ forgave you. Number three, it is the glory of man to forgive. Did you know that? In fact, everybody turn to Proverbs 19.11. It's in the middle of your Bible. Proverbs 19.11. It's perhaps the highest virtue of man. It is the glory of man when we forgive. Proverbs 19.11 in the English Standard Version. Good sense makes one slow to anger. Now watch this. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. Do you know what this is saying? This verse? It's saying that we are most like God when we forgive we are most like god when we forgive number 4 is it frees the conscience from guilt david says i acknowledge my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity i said i will confess my transgressions to the lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin When we confess our sins and when we forgive, it it frees the conscience from guilt. Now, those are four very good reasons, four biblical reasons, to forgive others. But the final reason, we forgive. And this is where I want every eye on me as I say this. I think the final reason, the fifth reason, is more important than the other four that I just read to you. This is not easy to hear, but it is biblical and is it is this. It is a prerequisite prerequisite, say that five times, for God's forgiveness. If we don't forgive others, then we don't get forgiven either. Our unforgiving attitude is an indispensable condition of receiving the forgiveness of our sins. And we forget that. It was Lord Herbert, I think you put it best when he said, He who cannot forgive others breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass. No. In the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew 6.12, we are introduced to a hard, yet consistent spiritual principle throughout the Bible. Jesus gives us a spiritual principle that is quite honestly difficult. And the spiritual principle is this. God deals with us as we deal with others. God deals with us as we deal with others. And this principle is found everywhere in the Bible. So you ready for a little Bible workout this morning? I'm getting feedback up here, by the way, David. So there we go. Luke 6. Luke chapter 6. Turn there. Verses 37 and 38. Luke 6:37 and 38. Remember, just keep this in the back of your mind, God deals with us as we deal with others. It says this, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you'll not be forg- condemned. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. Give it will be given to you. good measure, pressed down, shaking together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, what? It's going to be measured back to you. You see that? God deals with us as we deal with others. Turn to Matthew 5, verse 7. You're very familiar with this. Blessed are the merciful. Why are they blessed? You know this verse. For they shall receive mercy. If I want to receive mercy from God, then I better be merciful to others. Since you're in Matthew, look at verses 21 to 25. Again, the same spiritual principle. God deals with us as we deal with others. You have heard that it was said to those of old, verse 21, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In other words, you cannot come offering to the Lord some sacrifice to deal with your own spiritual life until what? You've gotten it right with. Somebody else. Now, there very well may be people here this morning who came to worship the Lord, who can receive instruction from the very preaching that's going on right now, from the Word of God, but you can't offer God acceptable worship. Why? Why? Well, you've got relationships that are not reconciled. In some cases, you are the unforgiving party. The principle, apart from God, deals with us as we deal with others, is clear in Matthew five twenty-one to 25. Reconciliation before worship. You're not reconciled, you're unforgiving, and you're trying to worship. He rejects your worship. Look at Matthew 6, 12 again. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is translated, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven. In other words, I've already forgiven. The idea is this, before we ever seek forgiveness for our own sin against God, We have already forgiven those who have sinned against us. We must remember the proper order. We forgive. Then we seek God's forgiveness. And what he is saying here is an unforgiving Christian is a contradiction. That is a hard spiritual principle, isn't it? But it is everywhere, as I tried to show you in the Bible. God deals with us as we deal with others. And it's good to be reminded of this, especially if you're married, to be honest with you, because we can get each other's nerves at times. Let's talk about this. Let's go to the negative, then we'll go to the positive, an unforgiving heart. Turn to Matthew 18. We looked at that last week. Matthew 18, verses 28 through 35. Now, you may remember this story, that this provincial governor, this servant, was in charge of collecting taxes for the king. It was the king's money. And this man had racked up a debt through collecting, embezzling, and wasting the king's tax money. The debt was so large, it was beyond calculation. And, of course, that... Debt is a picture of our sin. Our sin against God is so great, it is beyond our understanding. And in the parable, the king forgave the man his debt. But let's pick up verse 28 through 35. The servant went out after being forgiven. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. His master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! he went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That was the equivalent of about three months worth of work. And he'd been forgiven. How much? An incalculable amount. And he has this man thrown in debt over such a trivial amount. Now, while this man was in jail, would he have the ability to pay back the money he owed the servant? Of course not. But it just shows how evil And forgiving this man's heart really was. This is a picture, this parable, this servant is a picture of somebody who wants to take all the forgiveness of God that God can give. But isn't willing to give it to somebody else. Yeah, I'll take salvation. I'll have all my sins forgiven. But man, you cut me off when I'm driving. Or even, I'll take all the forgiveness God can give me, but you lie about me and slander me at work. I didn't even lose my job because of that. Or I'll take all the forgiveness that God gives. And my wife becomes a San Francisco 49er fan? Is that you in this parable? I tell you what, it is you. You're that servant. If you harbor an unforgiving spirit in your heart. Now, this teaching from Matthew 18, it is not unique to Jesus. Paul writes this to Christians. Everyone turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. By the way, where is the place where you pay off your debt for sin? This is unnerving. You've got to say it. Where is the place, the only place, where you pay off the debt for your sin? It's hell. This is what Paul says. First Corinthians 6, starting at verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such are some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of your God. What does this have to do with an unforgiving heart? Well, unfortunately for us, it's a reviler. What is a reviler? Because a reviler does not inherit the kingdom of God. A reviler is someone who blasphemes, i.e. they speak evil of others with the intent to blame and to hurt They are people who hate, they hold grudges, and are full of bitterness. That's why they revile, they rail on other people. That is evidence of what? An unforgiving heart. So you could call a reviler an unforgiving person. Verse 10, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor the unforgiving person will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I wanted to help us with this. I've, I've preached on this before, and I want to make it a little different. And so I discovered this. This is from Pastor Ray Pritchard. He summarizes, these are just the consequences of an unforgiving spirit. I'll put these up here for you. There's ten of them here. And so this is the first five. And you're going to recognize some of these, as I do. Your fellowship with the Father is blocked or disrupted. And that is, to me, that is the most damaging consequence. Because it's so easy for us, right here, to experience it, and it's so good and sweet and satisfying, and then to not experience it, and then to get used to not experiencing it, and then to just accept that you won't experience it again. We grieve the Holy Spirit, our prayers will be hindered and will not be answered. Since if I cherish sin in my heart, Psalm sixty six eighteen, the Lord would not have listened. And then you don't forgive. God leaves us alone to face the problems of life in our own power. And of course you've heard me say this before the devil the devil potentially gains a foothold through our unwillingness to forgive. We force God to become our enemy when we won't forgive. We lose the blessings of God in our life. This is so true. I have dealt with this. And I want to just take a pause and take a moment here to recognize that there are people here that do struggle to forgive. It is a real issue. But we waste time and emotional energy nursing a wounded spirit. We become enslaved to the people we hate, or you hate, and we become like those who refuse to forgive. This is not a comprehensive list, but those are some consequences to an unforgiving spirit. In Matthew 18, the unforgiving servant, he was put in prison to pay off a debt that he will never be able to pay. So he will be in prison forever, paying off what he can of his sin debt. Obviously, that's a clear reference to hell. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says people who are revilers, the unforgiving, they don't go to heaven. Now, I'm going here because of what Jesus mentioned in the Lord's Prayer in verses 12 and 14 to 15 of chapter 6. Our question I have is this. Does this mean that anyone who does not forgive others cannot receive salvation from God that is the question right that's what we want to know and I want to clarify a few things first of all struggling to forgive is not what prevents us from reaching heaven and I want to acknowledge the fact that it is a real issue for some people as long as we are on this side of heaven We will do our good deeds imperfectly, which includes forgiving. Here's the good news. Jesus died to cover those imperfections. But as I struggle to forgive, or as you struggle to forgive, and perhaps for a season, I just am weary and I give up the fight to forgive, and I nurture an unforgiving spirit, then I want you to be rest assured And don't be rest assured in a good way, but rest assured that you will suffer the consequences of an unforgiving spirit that are up on that screen. There will be no joy in your fellowship with God. If you think, if if you and I think that we can be indwelt by the spirit of Jesus Christ and not make war On that unforgiving attitude, we are deluded. And so, struggling to forgive is not what prevents us from reaching heaven. Refusing to forgive is what damns us to hell. Now, by refusing to forgive, I'm going to clarify a couple points Number one, the person that refuses to forgive, they have no intention to forgive. This is what they do. And what we can do, we cherish the grudge. We fondle the bitterness. How do we cherish and fondle bitterness and grudge? Well, by replaying the offense over and over again in our minds. And you know why we do this? Because it makes us feel good. Because we were right and we were wronged. And all this does is it takes the anger that you're feeling, that you haven't dealt with, and each time you replay the offense over and over in your mind, it's like taking a spike and a sledgehammer, and slamming that into your heart. And that unresolved anger turns into bitterness. And all the bitterness does is harden your heart. So each time you cherish that grudge, you replay an offense in your mind, you run the risk of either hardening your heart or already hardening a hardened heart. Now, by refusing to forgive, I also mean this second point. If the forgiveness received from God through the agonizing suffering and brutal death of His Son, Jesus Christ, is so ineffective in our hearts that we are bent on holding unforgiving grudges, we are not saved. Do not delude yourself. Now, how can I tell the difference between struggling to forgive and just refusing to forgive? I want to share a story. I shared this with you before, but I'm going to go into a little bit detail because it's the best example I can have. And it's a personal story. You know about the situation happened with Erica and I in our ministry at Bowling Green, our campus ministry. This couple that we had friends with and hired and worked with us, she was difficult. And she wanted to, to lead the ministry, and, and our, we were so naive, we thought we could help her. And this young lady um, stayed on with us and just kept causing problem after problem. So eventually, things came to a head at a prayer meeting that I wasn't able to attend, and so the rest of the leadership came to me, including her husband, and explained what went on. What we did was we decided at that point in time— this couple was already leaving to go to seminary in a couple of months, we would just pull her out, give her a break, get healthy, and she would uh, just kind of stay at home. And the school year was ending in about a month or so. And we agreed that he would go home, the husband would tell his wife, I would go and talk to students. That was the agreement. <laughs> I look back now and I realize what a bad plan that was. It may sound wise now, but here's what happened, is that The husband went back, and like too many passive males, he didn't tell his wife. I told the students. She goes to meet the students that night, and guess what she hears from them? Yeah. It just erupted in front of us. And to make a long story short, when it kind of came out, what was going on, I called him back and met with the husband. What are you doing? So we agreed to, and she was hurt and offended. And lo and behold... I let the senior pastor of the Long Green Covenant Church know what was going on, and he turns out that this couple had already called the church. They complained that I was spiritually abusing the children—remember that or the, the students? It was such a serious claim. They researched it. There's nothing to it, of course. It's so, clearly, the enemy is at work. When I found out what was going on, I talked to the senior pastor. We met for lunch. I then called her, and you were at the bottom of the stairs in the, in the attic. And I was on the phone apologizing to this lady. And all she could say, what was coming out of her, was as if it were an evil spirit speaking to me. Praying down judgment of God and boils all over me. I mean, it's just nasty stuff that she was saying. Now, I had not intended in any way, shape, or form to hurt her. But that was just the beginning. turns out that when I met with the the, uh, husband, we had a long conversation and was trying to Kind of put to death this whole situation, resolve it, and reconcile everything. He kept taking breaks from our discussion, and so he had to go to the bathroom. And turns out that that was a lie. He was taping their conversations. It was all a setup, and he would take that information. They were meeting privately with students, and it was an attempt to destroy the ministry and to discredit me and the other staff members. Didn't find this out until... We went to meet with the pastor, and he was to be the mediator between us, the staff, and this couple. And that's when we found out everything. At that meeting, and you've been in meetings like this before, perhaps some of you, where when you're put to the test, what happens? Well, you want to win the argument, so you lie. And that's exactly what they were doing. And the betrayal and everything that was just laid out before us by this couple. it was You were pregnant with Lydia. I remember we had to take a break from the meeting because you were in tears. It was just this awful mess. We wanted to reconcile; they didn't. Now, here's my point: the difference between struggling to forgive and just refusing to forgive. Well, at the end of that meeting, it was obvious we were on to reconcile; we would forgive. They weren't. It seemed like. But here's what happened at the end of that meeting: you could see that the husband he was more certainly willing to forgive, and he did forgive in the later meeting. So there's forgiveness there. But that wife, when the pastor literally is like this, and she was over here, and he said to her, Will you forgive? This was her response. She shook her head, head like this. And it was very clear. It wasn't even an option to forgive. Somehow what we had done to her was unforgivable. Now, we did not lie, we did not have secret meetings to try to divide, we didn't betray to do any of that. But they could not see that. They were justified, they thought, in their behavior. And to this day, that woman has never called us to extend forgiveness, or even to ask forgiveness for what she did. Now, as a pastor, put yourself in my shoes, or in the the pastor's shoes at that time, what do you do in a situation like that? What there is, that to me is a picture of we eventually, the elders pressured that husband. He met with us, the elders and myself and the other staff member, and he's extended forgiveness. His wife, no way. He gave, forgave. She wouldn't even consider it. If you're like that woman, then we are left with only one conclusion. The forgiveness that she thinks she received from Jesus Christ has not taken... I mean, it's ineffective. She is not saved. And what's scary is she came to a secular school with a Christian background, got involved in the ministry, did all of this stuff, was involved in full-time ministry, and she is not a believer. If she were a believer, she would be so miserable like David was... That she would be in such pain, spiritual pain, that she would confess it and want to see that relief. Does that help the difference between struggling to forgive, which is real, and just refusing to forgive? Let me just highlight this point even further, because this is jarring what is, we are reading here. Matthew 6:12: "Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors," is also a warning to us. The British pastor and evangelist John Wesley, while in Georgia, was traveling with General James Oglethorpe, who was angry with one of his subordinates. The man came to the general and humbly asked for forgiveness, but the general was gruffly answered him and said, "I never forgive." Wesley looked at the general in the eye and said, then I hope, sir, that you never sin. Now, why did Wesley say that? Well, St. Augustine says, Matthew 6, verse 12, he calls it a terrible petition or a terrible request. He pointed out that if you pray these words, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven others, while harboring an unforgiving spirit, you are actually asking God not to forgive you. The prayer, which was meant to be a blessing, becomes a a self-inflicted curse. This is why Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great English preacher, said that if you pray the Lord's Prayer, and hear me on this, if you pray the Lord's Prayer with an unforgiving spirit, you have virtually signed your own death warrant. This was like the big crescendo in the sermon here, okay? I'm trying to get you to see the importance of forgiving. So when you hear stories of of churches that, that they can't get along and they split over the color of carpet or the petty things that Christians argue over and they do not reconcile, they can't get along, it's astounding. I am grateful, and my wife can testify to this, and I, I, and I get it from my mom. I don't struggle with forgiveness. I have been betrayed and hurt and lied to I don't know how many times, but I don't struggle with forgiveness. I think that's one of the reasons why God has me here as a pastor, because do you remember the story that I shared last week from Charles Fuller in the ministry? In the first few years of ministry, what happened? All those friends that betrayed him and lied about him and abandoned him, and his son was at death's door three times, That's part of preparation for ministry. You need to be broken in order to be used. That's an unforgiving spirit. And there's a warning here for us. Now, let's talk about a forgiving heart. How do I cultivate a forgiving heart? Well, let's go back to the very beginning of Matthew 6, 12. And there's a reason why this is here. And it's the reason why I began the sermon with the conscience fund stories. And forgive us our debts. How do we translate that? Confess your sins to God. Now, there's a reason why that's here. When we don't see ourselves as very great sinners, we do not appreciate how greatly God has forgiven us. You with me so far? Are you with me so far? And when our own sins seem small, the sins of others seem so big. And their verse is also true. The greater you see the depth of your sin before God, the less the sins of other people against you will bother you. One of the reasons we need to acknowledge our sins regularly. It is to serve as a constant reminder of how sinful we are and how constant is God's forgiveness. And these reminders make us more prone to forgive others. I believe that people that struggle with forgiving other people don't see their sin for what it really is, to understand the depth of the magnitude of the offense towards God and are not thus practicing the discipline of confession. Now, what does forgiveness look like? Again, I want to go to Pastor Ray Pritchard. This is what this looks like. This is what a person who forgives looks like. They face what the person did to them and they forgive them anyway. And they don't keep bringing it up. They don't talk about it to others. They show mercy instead of judgment. And they refuse to speak evil of others. Do you remember this, David? Lydia's not here, but David went over 1 Peter. Talked about, at that point in time, the emperor Nero was doing what to Christians? It was persecution and martyring them. They were being lit on fire to light the way into Rome. He literally burned Rome and blamed the Christians so he could persecute them. What does Peter say? How do you respond to the, such governing authorities above them? Honor them. Submit to them. Don't slander them. That's what it says. So you refuse to speak evil of those who have hurt you. You choose not to dwell on it. Now this is, this is why, by the way, If you are an offense to somebody, it would be better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and you're drowned in water than to be an offense. Because here's the thing. When someone offends you and you struggle with forgiveness, it is a big task to fight that off. It requires energy, commitment, discipline. Physical and emotional energy has to be spent. And you've got to keep fighting it off sometimes. But if you're a forgiving person, you choose not to dwell on it. You pray for them. This is one of the things I've learned and I do over and over and over and over and over and over ad nauseum. I am praying the Lord's deepest blessings over those who have offended me. Because I want to prove what I am a true child of God. And I don't rejoice when they suffer. And even I help them when you can. Now, more than anything else, though, when it comes to forgiveness, forgiveness is simply a choice. It's a choice that God empowers every one of his children to make. You do not lack anything in an ability to forgive. My guess is none of you, and perhaps you've heard this story, none of you have had to forgive like Corey Ten Boom did. She was in a church in Munich, Germany, where she was speaking in 1947. She says that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, A brown felt hat clutched between his hands. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. Memories of the concentration camp came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man, I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment of skin. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we went. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message for line, how good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. It was the first time since my release they'd been face to face with one of the captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, But to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do, for I had to do it. I knew that the message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Still, I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me! I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder Raced down my arm Sprang into our joined hands And then this healing warmth Seemed to flood my whole being Bringing tears to my eyes I forgive you brother I cried With all my heart For a long moment we grasped each other's hands The former guard and former prisoner, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. With Corey's willingness came God's power to forgive her former captor. Take a guess what I want you to do this week. Let's pray. Father, we're going to close with a song, and yet I want our worship to be acceptable to you. And if there's anybody here that right now is feeling convicted that, yeah, there's a a relationship that is not right, and needs to be reconciled, I pray that they would make it their only priority this day of this week to make it right. I want to thank you for your forgiveness. I want to thank you for the advice I got from those elders that we simply forgave that couple and we moved on. And I pray for your blessing over them. Thank you for the ability to forgive. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.